One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. You've downloaded the NewsHour Extra podcast. This is Owen Bennett-Jones and we're starting this week outside the Chinese embassy in central London. Not long ago, this was a rather decrepit building. Since then, it's had a massive refit and now stands as a symbol of Chinese prestige. And we're discussing this week the relationship between the world's two major economic powers, the US and China. Now, many in the West assumed that as China grew, its middle classes would increase and then demand political reform. But it's not so sure it's working out that way. President Xi is a nationalist autocratic leader constraining democratic development and he's this week meeting a man who's got a lot in common with him. Uh, Both Trump and Xi are economic nationalists who don't like critical newspapers and do believe in their country's greatness. Is it going too far to say that Trump increasingly sees the world in rather the same way as President Xi does? Well, let's find out. The BBC is just across the road and we'll go over there now to the studios to meet our panel. We've got Ding Ding Chen, professor at the School of International Studies at Jinan University in Guangzhou. He's joining us from Hong Kong. Daniel Blumenthal is director of Asian Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. That's in Washington. Also in Washington, but in a different studio, we've got Bonnie Glazer, senior advisor for Asia and the director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And we have Elizabeth Economy, CV star, senior fellow and director of Asia Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. She's coming through from New York. Right, an opening question, as we normally do for everyone. And to set it up, I've just got this uh, quote from former chief strategist to Donald Trump, Steve Bannon. There is no leader Trump admires more than President Xi. Who thinks President Trump is becoming a little more like President Xi as his uh, White House administration, his four years, develops. Why don't you kick us off, Daniel Blumenthal? Is President Trump becoming more like Xi? No, n- not at all. And I think that the White House, including uh, Mr. Bannon and Mr. Trump, are prone to these rhetorical flourishes, but there's just no comparison. You know, Xi is uh, consolidating a, a leadership of a Chinese Communist Party, one party state. There is no room for the type of criticism that Mr. Trump gets. There would be no room for that in in China. Our constitutional system is very different, and uh, uh, you know there would be no voting by opposition parties, and and on and on and on. So, Mr. Trump is remaining very much Mr. Trump. Uh, Mr. Xi is remaining Mr. Xi, and maybe even more so. And and after the Party Congress and. Uh, his sort of consolidation of the party and making the party more prominent. But it's a one-party state with absolutely no room for criticisms or press freedom or intellectual freedom or anything of the kinds we have here. Bonnie Glazer, huge differences clearly, but uh, both economic nationalists, both pretty hostile to the press to varying degrees, of course, but nonetheless treat the press with disdain in both cases Uh, and, and so on. There are some parallels. I suppose I agree with your parallels to some extent, but I would also agree with Dan. President Trump 
probably is a bit envious of Xi Jinping's power in China, his ability to get things done very easily. After all, the U.S. president has been frustrated trying to advance his agenda, for example, in the U.S. Congress. He sometimes finds it difficult to get his message out to the people, and therefore he criticizes the U.S. media. That said, I think we do have very different systems. I don't think President Trump is seeking to play the kind of role that Xi Jinping plays in China at the top of the Communist Party. Some of their goals are the same, and that's interesting to talk about. You know, Trump is trying to seek uh, America first, make the United States a stronger country. And Xi Jinping is doing the same. From the time that he became the general secretary of the party in late 2012, he's been talking about the Chinese dream and the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. And so this is a goal that they both share. Of course, the United States doesn't want China to become strong at our expense. And that's part of the problem that President Trump even talked about in China when he was in the press conference with Xi Jinping. Yeah, Ding Ding Chen, make America great again. And I guess President Xi wants to make China great again. Yes, I agree with Bernie. President Xi Jinping has been working very hard to achieve that goal since he took over in 2012. And as we have seen from his political report at the 19th Party Congress, he already laid out a very detailed plan for achieving, you know, leading world power status by the year of 2050. So that's a long-term plan. And he's, I would say, uh, in the American language, trying to make China great again. Yeah. Elizabeth Economy, what's your view on these uh, differences and similarities? Well, I think everybody pretty much has it right. I think uh, Donald Trump would like to have uh, some of the authoritarian trappings that Xi Jinping has, not have to take criticism from the press and from the analyst community. Uh, I think both of them actually are children of privileged upbringing. They both are nationalists and went around the elite in many respects down to the masses uh, to push their agendas, talk about, you know, a swamp in the United States, but also all the corruption within uh, the Chinese Communist Party that Xi Jinping has tried to rout out. So I do see some similarities, but I think in in the end, their commitment, uh, each of them, uh, to making uh, the United States great and making China great is bound to produce some conflict between the two. And Elizabeth Economy, when we think about who has the upper hand as they both vie for these global roles, uh, give us your assessment of that. Which country is in the stronger position just now in the balance between them? Well, I think, you know, optically, it may appear that China is in a stronger position. Xi Jinping has put himself and the country forward as a defender of globalization, as a a leader uh, within the world, you know, stepping out on climate change, for example, even as uh, President Trump has retreated. But I think the reality of the situation is that the United States uh, continues to be the standard bearer for the liberal world order. Uh, And when you look around Asia, uh, you'll see whether it's South Korea or Japan or even Vietnam, India, uh, Australia, Singapore, all of these countries uh, have closer ties uh, to the United States in many respects than they do to China. They have concerns about a rising China that they don't feel about uh, the United States when it's in the leadership position. So I think that, you know, optically, it appears that uh, China has the stronger position. And I suppose particularly since President Trump is weak at home, uh, perhaps, and and Xi Jinping appears to be strong uh, within China. But I think the reality is that the United States continues to be the global leader. Because Daniel Blumenthal, I think, I think one of your 
yeah, main arguments on this whole topic is that the United States should be more confident in its own power. Yes, it should be much more confident in its own power. There's obviously, as, as Liz alluded to, a lot of, I guess, Western press about she's supposed grabbing of the mantle of globalization. But as I think all of us have written about, that's more facade than anything else. I mean, there's a great amount of deglobalization in China and the end of market-based reforms has been now pretty apparent for the last 10 years or so. I think China is going to face some extraordinarily tough choices. They're going to grow and be powerful, but not like they have in the last 30 years. So they're going to have to choose between internal security, maritime ambitions, continental ambitions with the one belt, one road. And the United States, when you look at the gap between the United States and China in wealth, it's extraordinary and growing. But that said, we have political dysfunction here in the United States. And to turn that wealth uh, into power and influence has been a problem for us for, for many years now. And so we've kind of allowed ourselves uh, to say that that China is somehow ascendant, which is just not true compared to us. So, Dingding Chen, can you sort of talk us through this as it's seen in China? Because one of the striking things are these quotes and tweets and so on from President Trump saying things like, uh, you know, President Xi is a great man. I think he likes me, you know, sort of uncharacteristically uncertain and there's, there's been more today. Uh, my feeling towards you is incredibly warm. We have great chemistry. Uh, how do Chinese people interpret these Trump remarks? Well, it's an interesting question because most ordinary Chinese people uh, certainly feel a little bit welcome based on these comments by President Trump. But I think in reality, they also understand, you know, President Trump's words are just words. His actions would be different, particularly when he goes back to D.C. and uh, will make important policy decisions in the future. So there's this distinction between rhetorics and policy. And so I think it's also for policymakers in China, they understand President Trump's tweets are just tweets. You cannot take them uh, very, you know, seriously because he would change his mind. Okay, but before we're going to go through some of the policy issues, and let me just ask you about this, first of all, right at the top. And, you know, Previous presidents, when they've gone to China, it's, there's, human rights has been part of the agenda. And uh, that's always been the case. And the degree to how much it would be part of the agenda was always contested. But there it was. Uh, and now that's Ding Ding Chen completely gone, apparently, hasn't it? it just you know, President Trump just doesn't care about that. Yes, but this is not entirely surprising because even during President Trump's campaign period, he didn't really mention much about China's human rights and democracy and those issues. He uh, talked a lot about trade and jobs and how China was hurting U.S. economy, so on and so forth. So from that moment on, we already knew that uh, President Trump, you know, if elected, would uh, pay less attention to human rights issues in China. He would, he would uh, place more emphasis on jobs and trade and, of course, now uh, North Korea. So, you know, he's ignoring of uh, these issues, I think, from China's perspective, uh, certainly it's not surprising at all. Right, but what can I want I, to ask you, yeah, who's that? Yeah. Dan Blumenthal. Yeah. yeah, sure. I wish what you were saying was true, that past U.S. presidents cared about human rights in China. It's not. It's not true. I haven't seen a presidency that was concerned about human rights in China in a very long time. Well, they always I mean, raised it. Not really. Uh, to varying degrees, perhaps they 
raised it in, in quiet ways. Certainly during the Clinton administration, they tried to raise specific cases of human rights abuse privately. But, you know, the Chinese have won in terms of the propaganda and information and political warfare. They engage in in damping down U.S. criticisms of their human rights record for a very long time. Elizabeth Economy, you've got something on this? Sure. I I think that's not exactly right, Dan. I do think that uh, during the Obama administration, they pursued resolutions within the United Nations on Chinese human rights practices. A State Department report was quite hard-hitting. The president raised human rights abuses privately, but also spoke about the value of freedom of speech and American values when he spoke in China. So I I think that there was definitely a thread of, of human rights that was maintained, and since certainly the Clinton administration always and this president has simply not raised it at all. I don't think we've ever and even heard the words Bonnie. human rights come out of his mouth. Uh, all right, well, this is I, Bonnie Glaser, and yeah. I would like to add to that as well. Uh, let's go even back to the George W. Bush administration, where President Bush met with Chinese dissidents before he went to China. In the Obama administration, we didn't see the president do that, but we did see his national security advisor meet with dissidents. There was a highlighting about the problems with the restriction of individual freedoms in China. There was an emphasis on human rights and our overall foreign policy. And that is not something that we have seen with this president. And more importantly, as I just don't hear the president talking about values as part of our foreign policy or even our secretary of state. This is Dan Blumenthal. I I disagree with that. I mean, the speech in Korea about the value of, of liberty for Koreans and the contrast between freedom for South Koreans and the darkness and, and atrocities of North Koreans couldn't have been more robust on the issue of human rights and, and freedom. In China, we don't know what he raised privately. I think human rights is both intrinsically important and a powerful weapon in a competition. Okay. But I, I wish we I wish it were true, but it's just I just haven't seen it. Which is just just one more on this then, Daniel Blumenthal, because it, it just seems as you know, I'm not as close to these issues as you you all four of you are, but just viewing it from the outside, it would seem even if it was token efforts before, the fact is those token efforts are no longer being made and that would seem to an outside observer of this to be a shift towards China. You know, that the Chinese would be delighted with that, that it's it may not be a huge deal, but nonetheless Trump is not mentioning something they don't want to hear. He might talk about it in North Korea, but not in China. I don't know what he said privately in China. I do know that the Chinese need to get prepared for a robust challenge in the rest of Asia with the United States adopting this free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, mm-hmm. okay. which the Chinese can't, can't stand. Let, let, that, that takes us very well onto regional issues, and uh, that's what we're going to deal with now. And Bonnie Glazer, I wonder if you can kick us off with just some sort of explanation for people, again, who don't follow this as closely as you do, about the South China Sea. What's going on there? Why does it matter? Well, the South China Sea really became an important issue in about 2009-2010 period. China was taking some steps to harass its neighbors, interfere with its energy exploration efforts of other countries. And that really uh, accelerated the steps that China was taking that I think were found objectionable. 
in 2013 when China began building very large islands that then later became military outposts. And we now see very long runways on three land features, a total of 72 hardened aircraft shelters on these islands, and only a matter of time before China actually deploys military assets on them. And the U.S. has concerns about Chinese challenges to freedom of navigation, excessive maritime claims, and not necessarily that China has the intention in peacetime to interfere with commercial traffic. But China is seeking to assert greater control over the airspace and waters in the South China Sea. It is harassing its neighbors and posing threats to their sovereignty. And there are five other nations uh, that have claims in the South China Sea. Uh, The Vietnamese are a target of this, the Philippines, Malaysia, even Indonesia, which is not a claimant but has a dispute with China that is it actually overlaps with the South China Sea and the Natunas, and uh, Taiwan has a position that's quite similar to China's, but also is, I think, concerned about this island building and militarization. The United States under the Obama administration, I think, did not really have an effective strategy. We didn't see a lot of pushback, although it was talked about rhetorically in very tough terms. And we see freedom of navigation operations, U.S. ships. They and aircraft, they will actually enter into the waters very close to these islands, basically signaling we won't let China make excessive maritime claims. That in itself is not a sufficient strategy. Okay, so that's a very helpful introduction. And Ding Ding Chen, I'm going to ask you to listen to a bit of tape now and comment on it when we've heard it, because it uh, illustrates some of what Bonnie Glazer was saying there. It's a uh, Uh, The BBC's Rupert Wingfield Hayes. Now, a couple of years ago, he went to the South China Sea in a small plane to see what would happen. So I asked him, what did happen? Well, we took off from the Philippine island of Palawan and headed out across the South China Sea towards what are called the Spratly Islands. They're a group of atolls roughly halfway between the Philippines and the coast of Vietnam, about 400 nautical miles off the coast of the Philippines. So as you approach one called Mischief Reef, which is only about 160 nautical miles off the coast of the Philippines, there has been a massive land reclamation gone on there, creating an island that is nine kilometres long from just the Chinese dredging up vast quantities, millions and millions of tonnes of sand and coral from the bottom of the ocean with big dredgers and creating new land, on on top of which they were building, quite clearly you could see, building a, a large runway and other facilities. And as we approached the 12-mile uh, limit, uh, we were challenged by the Chinese Navy repeatedly and increasingly aggressively telling us to turn away. Right, and, and you didn't. So uh, as you got towards the islands, what did you see? We went to three different atolls, and they are all large-scale reclamation projects that have gone on. On top of them, they built runways, airport facilities, hangars, radar stations, accommodation. And since our trip, we understand anti-aircraft missiles and military aircraft are now being based on those islands. And just to be clear, you tried to fly up to them and you're allowed to up to 12 miles, right? So when they were shouting at you to go away, there was no legal basis for that. Well, there's no legal basis for them to tell us to shout shout us to go away at all because these features are not recognised under international law. They're considered to be illegal. Therefore, we should be allowed to fly right over the top of them. However, you know, 
you, you want to be cautious when you're dealing with the Chinese military. So we had decided we would fly up to the 12-mile limit, which seemed completely reasonable and no reason to challenge us. Well, we were challenged well before we, we got within 12 miles, repeatedly and, as I say, aggressively. And they described us as a military aircraft approaching a Chinese military installation should turn away immediately. It is a very aggressive, but as far as we can see, quite successful strategy by the Chinese to scare everybody else into keeping away from these places. And that was uh, Rupert Winfield Hayes, BBC correspondent. So, Ding Ding Chen, I mean, that, that, that sounds like aggressive destabilising behaviour. Yes, I think China would have a different view because China viewed these islands as Chinese sovereignty, Chinese territory, and China believes that it has the right to do the land recommendation work, and also China has the right to defend itself when necessary. And, of course, there are disputes between China and other claimant states. And but I believe currently the, you know, China on the one hand and the other states on the other hand are working together to find a mutually acceptable solution to these disputes. Well, Bonnie Glaze has given us her view. Daniel or Elizabeth, do you want to come back on that? Sure. Look, we're in a fundamental geostrategic competition with China. And the challenge for any president, including Trump, is to recognize competition without China being an enemy or a friend. The South China Sea for the United States, and now they're talking about an Indo-Pacific. So the Indian Ocean through the Pacific is a fundamental interest of the United States to keep free from China, turning it into a sphere of influence. And what the Trump administration seems to be coming up with is that the great maritime democracies, Japan, Australia, India, and the United States are going to form some kind of arrangement to ensure to check China's ambitions in those areas. But the American people have to understand that this is a fundamental national interest of the United States. They have already militarized. They've already taken over important territory. The question that the Trump administration is left with is, what can they do to ensure that no further progress is made and that the Southeast Asian countries have the basic capacity to defend their territories and their claims and not be coerced by China. Elizabeth Economy, just listening to that, South China Sea, fundamental interest in the other, other maritime areas around there, fundamental interest in the United States. But I guess China would say they're much closer to China and even more fundamental interest. Well, I, I think, you know, somewhere between three and five trillion dollars worth of trade travels through the South China Sea annually. And uh, so it is a fundamental uh, interest of the United States that this remains uh, open. You know, freedom of navigation is a fundamental principle uh, that the United States supports globally. Uh, I, I think it's important to recognize that while China claims sovereignty, no other country in the world really recognizes China's claims, or at least uh, when it came to the uh, tribunal of the Permanent Court of Arbitration, uh, which ruled on the Philippines uh, case against China, uh, the court uh, agreed uh, that China's claims were baseless. You're listening to a podcast edition of NewsHour Extra, an hour of discussion on a single topic every week. And this week, it's the US-Chinese relationship. And don't forget some other BBC World Service podcasts are out there. May I recommend to you Witness... It's our history series told by people who were there. First-hand accounts of some of the most important events which have helped shape our lives and the places we live. But now you're listening to NewsHour Extra and a reminder of our panel today. We have Professor Ding Ding Chen, 
from Jinan University, Daniel Blumenthal from the American Enterprise Institute, Bonnie Glazer from the Centre for Strategic and International Studies, and Elizabeth Economy from the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. Now, there are lots of issues that will be occupying President Trump on this Asian trip, but there's no doubt that North Korea is up right up in the centre of it all. And uh, speaking in Beijing, President Trump suggested that President Xi might be the man to solve the North Korean issue. The United States is committed to the complete and permanent denuclearization of North Korea. So important. China can fix this problem easily and quickly. And I am calling on China and your great president to hopefully work on it very hard. I know one thing about your president. If he works on it hard, it will happen. There's no doubt about it. Professor Ding Ding Chen, is he going to work on it hard and make it happen? I think uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping will certainly cooperate with President Trump on this North Korea issue. But I don't think it's likely uh, they will find a, a final solution to the problem because it's a long-term problem, it's so complicated. But I do think uh, there's a, a probability that the two countries will work together to put more pressures on North Korea and hopefully... Uh, find some short-term uh, solutions. Yeah, but I mean, that, I mean, at the end of the day, that doesn't really add up to much, does it? I mean, there is the question of, is he going to stay in power and are they going to have a nuclear weapon? And the answer to both those is, yeah, he is going to stay in power and, yeah, they are going to have a nuclear weapon, isn't it? Well, in the short run, yes. The answer to both questions is, unfortunately, yes. But I think uh, uh, when we look at this North Korea problem, we needed to be patient. We needed to maintain the long-term perspective because it's not going to be resolved anytime soon. So the, any sort of a pressure should be uh, long-term pressure, should be sustainable. And I think China understands that China's national interest actually is and are now being you know, hurt by North Korea's behavior. So that's why part of the reason why China is willing to uh, work together with uh, President Trump on this issue. This is Bonnie Glaser. On the question that you raised about whether Kim Jong-un would remain in power, I think we do have to make the point that Secretary Tillerson has stated that regime change is not the U.S. goal. So Trump is not seeking Xi's collaboration to oust Kim Jong-un from power. He is seeking his cooperation to really tighten the screws to prevent hard currency revenue going back to Kim Jong-un's regime. And in that regard, the big ask is for China to cut back on or shut off the crude oil oil uh, pipeline that it uh, uses to send uh, probably about 90 percent of North Korea's imports of crude oil. And we don't know whether this particular trip by the president to China has actually delivered any pledge in that regard. The Chinese did say to President Trump that they have taken new steps to deal with some of the banks to crack down on them that are doing business, enabling the North Koreans to do illicit activities and access the international financial system. So the real focus of the U.S., I think, has been so far on the strict compliance by China with U.N. sanctions, and it has been a mixed bag, and so I think they're trying to work with China more on that. But whether China's actually going to do enough to cause pain in North Korea that would then result in instability, 
that could spill over to Chinese borders and potentially lead to regime collapse. That's where I think, um, at least I'm skeptical, that China will do that because its interests do not coincide uh, with the United States and North Korea. We agree we want denuclearization, but uh, China is likely to cooperate only until it sees signs of instability. And then I think it's going to take its foot off the gas. Yeah, Daniel Blumenthal, this all sounds so far short of the win that President Trump is looking for on North Korea. It, it really does. I'd make a couple points. Point one is it, it's a mistake to say to take regime change off the table if you're saying all options are on the table. It's a big mistake because... Uh, that has to be an option and you know we're not talking about going to war or for forceful regime change but we're talking tactics now that's point 2 rather than strategy so what does the united states think the end game is and president trump at the korean national assembly pretty much said uh, he's open to negotiations but he also said the future of the peninsula should be one of freedom from from its people and reunification of families and so on. The the question really is, is if China eventually sees North Korea as a complete liability, which I don't think they're there yet, is is there scope for diplomacy between the United States, China and the ROK to really work towards the vision of reunification that Trump and others, including President Obama at certain points, laid out? Elizabeth Economy, all this sounds way short of the suggestion I've read somewhere that the U.S., you know, that Trump is so keen on, on a North Korea win that he might actually be prepared to give something China on trade to get China, China to help him. But, uh, well, what do you think of that? Uh, well, the president has mentioned at various points uh, through his Twitter diplomacy that he would be willing, in fact, to hold off on pressing China too hard on trade in order to gain a greater Chinese cooperation on North Korea. I don't actually think that that is an effective strategy. I don't think that President Xi will be persuaded in any way that uh, the United States taking a step back on, you know, levying some tariffs on Chinese goods uh, would be enough to get uh, China to, you know, turn the spigot off on its uh, oil supply uh, to North Korea. One is fundamental to Chinese security, and the other, I think the Chinese believe they can effectively respond to a tariff uh, war with a tariff war back. So I, I don't think that trade-off between trade and security is one that the Chinese are going to buy into. And frankly, you know, they've practiced this kind of coercive diplomacy before, and I don't think it's been particularly effective either. This is Dan Blumenthal. Um, the Chinese calculus would have to fundamentally change. And it would be almost the opposite. It would be the Trump administration economic hawks on China carrying the day and saying we don't really care that much about taking risks of a, of a tariff war with China. We will actually punish Chinese companies way beyond what anyone was willing to do, even ones that aren't directly involved in, in North Korea trade but are indirectly uh, through the party subsidy system, we're willing to punish them. And the only way in the end to change China's calculus to do what Bonnie is, is suggesting needs to happen would be for China just to see this as a risk and feel a lot of pain before they actually said, OK, you know what? Enough is enough. Uh, let's work with the Americans towards a final solution from North Korea. That's interesting. More stick than carrot. So well, let, let, let's talk about trade. And for people who uh, 
haven't followed this blow by blow, as it were, it is interesting to just remind them of what candidate Trump was saying. I mean, he was a China basher. And here he is, June 2016, a steel town in western Pennsylvania, speaking in front of a struggling industrial factory, giving a speech in which he placed much of the blame for western Pennsylvania's woes on China. The city of Pittsburgh and the state of Pennsylvania have lost one-third of their manufacturing jobs since the Clintons put China into the WTO. 50,000 factories across America have shut their doors in that time. What a waste and what a sad, sad thing. And later in the same speech, he said what he was going to do about it. I'm going to instruct my Treasury Secretary to label China a currency manipulator, which should have been done years ago. Any country that devalues their currency in order to take unfair advantage of the United States, which is many countries, will be met with sharply. And that includes tariffs and taxes. I'm going to instruct the U.S. Trade Representative to bring trade cases against China, both in this country and at the WTO. Uh, so that's what he promised. And he told the New York Times uh, editorial board that he would actually make those tariffs against China at 45%. So what happened? Speaking in Beijing, he said that the lack of a, a level playing field was nothing to do with China's failure to play by the rules. It was America's fault. Both the United States and China will have a more prosperous future if we can achieve a level economic playing field. Right now, unfortunately, it is a very one-sided and unfair one. But, but, I don't blame China. <laughs> After all, who can blame a country for being able to take advantage of another country for the benefit of its citizens. I give China great credit. But in actuality, I do blame past administrations for allowing this out-of-control trade deficit to take place and to grow. We have to fix this because it just doesn't work for our great American companies, and it doesn't work for our great American workers. It is just not sustainable. So, uh, Ding Ding Chen, is that what, uh, I don't know, victory looks like, or is it just the calm before the storm? Well, like I said before, I mean, a lot of his comments cannot be taken very seriously, especially he was giving these comments in, in Beijing, in China, in front of the Chinese host. So who knows what he would do when he goes back to D.C. I think that's the real test. And I do believe uh, there's going to be strong pushback from the U.S. side in the next, uh, you know, three, two, four, uh, six months with regard to trade. And China, I think, is getting ready to uh, either make some concessions or confront the U.S. pressure uh, in the trade area. So, Elizabeth, economy, if, if Trump doesn't do tariffs, 45 percent or whatever, what other leverage has he got? 
Well, I think, you know, the statement he made in Beijing was somewhere between embarrassing and hilarious, you know, saying that it's the responsibility only of U.S. administrations, you know, for the fact that China has been allowed to steal American intellectual property, uh, has created a subsidy system that leads to an unfair uh, playing field and pushes on a forced technology transfer. I think China has something to do with that. But I think if you look behind, I think Ding Ding is right that if you look at what is actually going on in Washington now and what's likely to happen when the president returns, that there are going to be some pretty tough actions that are being put in motion. So, for example, already the president has launched a 301 investigation to look at what China's been doing in terms of IP theft and in terms of forced technology transfer. A 301 Uh, investigation? It's a unilateral American outside of the WTO investigation into, uh, it's going to be a year-long investigation, I think it began in August, into, to study you know, what has China been doing, and then to uh, talk about what kinds of actions uh, the United States might take. He's taken Chinese cyber law, the U.S. has taken China's cyber law to the WTO for debate. There is within Congress right now a very strong move uh, to tighten up and expand the uh, CFIUS uh, regulations. So that's the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States to look more closely at, you know, what other kinds of Chinese investment ought to be uh, evaluated, or not just Chinese investment, but foreign investment ought to be evaluated, uh, not just maybe on national strict national security grounds. Of course, you know, if the president were really serious about getting China to move forward on things like market access, uh, he would go back to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. He would move forward on trying to negotiate a bilateral investment treaty. Uh, But these are very long-term strategic kinds of initiatives, and the president is a much more transactional, short-term kind of uh, thinker and uh, an actor. So, you know, we're going to move forward. It's going to be some tough moves. He can't afford to have the trade balance grow during his first year, he pledged to reduce the bilateral trade deficit. It will be very embarrassing for him if the numbers come out uh, in January and February of next year and our trade deficit with China has expanded. So both of you, uh, Ding Ding Chen and Elizabeth Economy, saying, don't really listen to what he's saying now, he's going to get tougher. Bonnie and Daniel, do you agree? I think that the Trump administration uh, is considering what route forward it's going to take. You know, one possibility is that Trump got private assurances from Xi Jinping that now that he's on the other side of the 19th Party Congress, that uh, China might make some moves to address the issues in the relationship, the predatory trade practices, the compulsory transfer of technology by American companies and and, uh, other foreign companies that invest in China, the lack of market access, or the United States will move towards trade remedies. So I think one of these two paths is likely Trump may agree to give Xi Jinping a bit more time if he does uh, step up on North Korea. I agree with Liz. That is a bad outcome. The United States should be able to talk about more than one issue at a time. But it's also important to highlight some of the the numbers in the relationship where we have now this year, the forecast is that this bilateral trade deficit will grow to about $360 billion. So far, the 100-day trade deal between the U.S. and China has boosted U.S. exports by about $1 billion. And that is it. And so this trade deficit is widening. And the president is going to be under, I think, a lot of criticism if he does not begin to take steps to address this problem. Yeah, Daniel Blumenthal, I mean, again, as an outsider, not familiar as you are with these issues, when you hear numbers like that, and 
Everything we know about Trump's attitude to trade is one of his biggest issues. Why hasn't he just whacked tariffs on Chinese goods and said stop? Well, because like so many, uh, uh, he's very different than any other president we've had. But in some ways, he's not. You know, once he got into office and and consulted with um, trade experts and and so forth, you know, it was a more take it slower approach. So you have the action on intellectual property theft. I think on the trade deficit issue, you know, I hope those who are fixated on it in the Trump administration, I hope they get over that because that's the wrong metric. As everyone knows, there's a capital account. There's huge amounts of investment coming into the United States from China. We're the number one recipient of investment that creates jobs in the United States. Some of that will be cracked down on by this new CFIUS uh, approach. But the trade deficit is just the wrong measure. And in some ways, he's he's boxed himself in, as, as Bonnie and Liz have said, by making it such a big part of his trade agenda. So, so just to be clear about that, you're saying the trade deficit is not the big problem. So what other things like technology transfer and that sort of thing? Yeah. So the, big, the two core problems or the three big problems, IP theft, the forced tech transfer, and then the continued subsidization of state-owned enterprises by the Chinese. And in fact... Just to be clear about that, the first yeah. two of those is basically the Chinese getting hold of American technology yeah, one way for, or another. Either stealing it or forcing U.S. companies to give it up once uh, in, in exchange for market access. But the third, really, the, the heart of the matter is even post-WTO, and this is why so many have turned against the Chinese accession to the WTO, the roaring back of the state sector and the Chinese economy, the mass subsidization of state-owned enterprises, that's really what puts a lot of private sector companies in China, in the United States, in England, out of business. And that's really what I think people concerned about free trade should really focus on the most. I'd like to broaden this out to a final topic, which is looking ahead and just asking Uh, What is the future of American power in the world and Chinese power in the world? Both still talk about their global role. China, talking about it at the last Congress, increasingly interested in a global role. America, obviously, well used to having a global role. Professor Ding Ding Chen, can you just give us your understanding of the aspirations of the Chinese leadership and the Chinese people in the coming decades? Well, I think it's clear after the 19th Party Congress, uh, China under the leadership of Chinese President Xi Jinping will make great efforts to achieve a leading power status by the year 2050. And certainly it's a a long time from here, but they would uh, take a basically two-step approach. So the first step is to basically complete socialist modernization by the year 2035. That's another 18 years from now. And the second step is to, between 2035 and 2050, to truly become a superpower like the U.S. So the question whether U.S. would remain superpower, I think yes, U.S. would remain superpower. China does not seek to replace the U.S. as the only superpower or hegemon or whatever, but China wants to be equal to the U.S. by the time of 2050. So that's the long-term plan, and that's already being uh, included in the party constitution. So for the party and for China as a whole, uh, that's the only one goal uh, from now on. But, Professor, do you think the Chinese will make good imperialists? Well, I don't think it's in their discourse. They believe 
that this time, this era is different. This is the era of globalization. This is the era of economic interdependence. The old models of imperialism or uh, colonialism certainly would not work in this new era. So China, like many other countries, must accept this new reality, and they must work together to create what they would like to talk about is uh, the community of a uh, common future. Well, no doubt, no doubt it, they would, and all, right. all, all empires do. But, I mean, what, <laughs> if, when, you, when you're looking back at history, obviously uh, you can't really suggest, I'm sure, that yeah, it's all different now. And China is the, the coming power. It just occurs to me, it, you know, in many of the places where China operates, it doesn't seem to be greatly admired. People may be very grateful for the money and, and investment, but it's not like uh, they really want the Chinese running their countries. This is uh, Dan Blumenthal. Can I? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So... Chinese are imperialists. I mean, if if you talk to the people in Xinjiang, if you can get there, or Tibet, or increasingly Hong Kong, the claims of reunification of the motherland of Taiwan, they already are. I mean, so I think you're absolutely right. China has been an empire and a civilization longer than it's been a nation state. And I think you're right. One of the greatest fears, uh, certainly in Southeast Asia, is that China does want to construct some kind of facsimile of, of what it had before, a, a Sinosphere. Professor Ding Ding Chen, before I broad this out to the others, just let you come back on that. Yes, I understand. I think your point is a very good one. China does uh, face a lot of challenges in terms of winning the hearts and the minds of other countries. I think it's a long-term challenge for China, and China needs to work harder to uh, achieve that goal. But uh, it's a long-term strategy, so it's going to take some time. Hearts and minds. Bonnie Glazer, I'm just going to play you very briefly an example of a heart and a mind that's apparently been won over. Arabella Kushner, that's uh, President Trump's granddaughter, singing in Mandarin on a video that was uh, shown to President Xi. So there we are. Apparently, I'm told she learnt it from her nanny, learnt Chinese from her nanny, and uh, th- there it is. So we know, it used to be rock and roll. Is that the future we've just heard? I think um, that uh, the fact that she's learning Chinese is great. A lot of Americans, a lot of people all over the world are learning Chinese. And, uh, of course, the fact that uh, Arabelle is learning Chinese, uh, this I started before President Trump was actually, um, I think, even a candidate for president. I don't think this tells us very much about necessarily Chinese power in the world. Does China have soft power like the United States does? Um, I think that's very questionable. Does China have allies like the United States does? The answer to that is no. There are very few countries in the world who really fear the United States. We're not out there making claims on their territories. But China does have a lot of neighbors who are very fearful and want U.S. presence and the presence of other powers outside the region to counterbalance um, China and help them to preserve their autonomy. China's big appeal has been its rapidly accelerating economic power, its GDP growth, and to some extent, the increase in its standard of living, although per capita income is still really quite low. And if the Chinese economy slows down, then one has to call into question whether or not China's model, which now Xi Jinping has put out as something that develops 
developing countries should consider as an option, whether that's going to have the appeal to countries uh, in the world. Exactly. Yes. Well, Elizabeth Economy, that's exactly what I'm trying to ask about is, is can China's soft power rival that of the United States, which has been remarkable over the last half century. I, mean, I think it's taken a knock in the last 15 years, probably since Iraq and so on. But I mean, nonetheless, the American dominance of global culture was quite amazing. Uh, do you think the Chinese can do that? Well, I'm not really sure when Xi Jinping talks about the China model and the potential for others to emulate it. I'm not really sure what that model consists of. Does it consist of a communist party? Does it consist of a corrupt, you know, leadership? Does it consist of a politically repressive state, state-directed market and investment? What is that model that is so attractive that others should follow it? You know, so to speak to China's soft power, I think soft power is something that emanates from society and uh, from creativity from the thoughts and ideas that are attractive to others. And until China has, I think, a freer uh, society and is able to create and uh, develop a culture that is attractive to other countries, its soft power will remain not as strong as the United States or indeed as strong as that of many other countries. We have a little ways to go for China to assume a leadership role in the world, either as a model for other countries or indeed as a country that has truly stepped up to the plate to forge international agreements, to lead on issues beyond its own narrow self-interest, like what's going on with the refugee crisis uh, with the Rohingya. So I'm waiting to see uh, Xi Jinping and China truly step up to lead. Okay, I'm just going to give a final remark to Professor Ding Ding Chen, because you just heard there that to be a soft power to rival the US, China would need to have a more attractive political system. Do you think that's right? Or do you think that pure economic might abroad and discipline at home, as the party would put it, will be enough? Well, I agree. Certainly, economic might would not be enough. And China's political system will transform in the future. It's going to take uh, some time. But I think the point that China is trying to make is each country will need to decide what political system is suitable for them. So they have the right to decide. So China's model certainly might not be suitable for many other developing countries, but they have the right to choose. If they think the model is good for their country, they can go for that. But for the moment, I agree China has a you know, long way to go in terms of uh, providing a truly uh, alternative option to the U.S. model. Well, we've had a good deal of agreement on the panel today, and uh, thank you very much for your expert explanations. Professor Ding Ding Chen, Daniel Blumenthal, Bonnie Glazer and Elizabeth Economy, thank you to you all. Uh, just a reminder, comments, news out on extra at bbc.co.uk. Tweet at bbcnhextra. Get the podcast. Uh, that's the BBC News Hour Extra podcast. Still looking for a new name. Lots of suggestions coming in. No final decision taken. Uh, contributions gratefully received. But that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. And from Owen Bennett-Jones here in London, goodbye.